Are you ready to explore life's possibilities? Go from ordinary to extraordinary. Then it's time to live limitless. To live limitless. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Limitless podcast. This is episode number 25, and I'm pretty excited about this one because the subject matter is quite different than any other podcast I've done before because on this one, I wanted to focus on sustainable energy. So a friend of mine from uh, from Calgary, her name is Kaylee Taylor, and she is a sustainable development professional with a keen interest in systems thinking, social change, and youth engagement. She has a wide range of experience, including green growth advancement, climate change management, business development, project management, and NGO leadership. But how I met Kaylee was I saw her featured in a magazine featuring uh, the top 40 under 40 in Calgary. So I reached out to her and just said hello, and we met up for coffee, and I learned a little bit about what she was about, and it was very awesome. So she is the co-founder and founding executive director of Student Energy, which is a global not-for-profit dedicated to empowering the next generation of leaders who will transition the world to a sustainable energy future. Now, Kaylee did run the organization for three years, which was uh, the formative years and initial growth stage before now taking on the position of board chair. And that's because she's now moved to Switzerland, to Geneva, to start working with the UN. She actually works for the International Institute for Sustainable Development in Geneva, coordinating action on the implementation of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. She's also a member of the UNOG SDG Lab team, which represents the NGO viewpoint and providing expertise on systems change and innovation best practice. So basically, she knows a lot about um, sustainable development, a lot about clean energy, and it's pretty awesome to have her on the show today. We talk about a lot of stuff. Um, we get into whether she always had this passion for the green energy or how she developed it, what were some of the first steps she took to launch student energy, what were some of the big wins she had, as well as um, where she thinks the energy industry is going. Uh, since we're both from Alberta, we just talk a little bit about the future here and what the thought, what her thoughts are on kind of the the pipeline debacle that is so popular in the U.S. and Canada, especially Canada. Um, what's her thoughts on things like carbon tax and all kinds of other stuff that deals with energy? But of course, we also talk about how she manages such a, a busy workload and how she stays so efficient. Any habits for all that kind of stuff and. Uh, some of her favorite podcasts. She's, she actually is a podcast junkie, so she has a lot of, of recommendations for other podcasts to listen to as well. So I don't want to keep you any longer. Let's, uh, well, let's start the show. Hey, Kaylee, how's it going? I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. Where are you at the moment? I am in Geneva, Switzerland. How's it over there? Is it, uh, is it similar to the Rockies? <laughs> It's a little warmer. You know, I was I joke with everyone here that it's the nicest winter I've ever had because it's not as cold as Canada, but it, it is it is kind of similar. But uh, it's, it's starting to warm up, so I was down by the lake most of the day today. Yeah, I, I just noticed, like, whenever I'm at the, at the mountains, if you read, like, the people who came over to help develop it, it seems like a lot of them were from Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> They're pros in that sense. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <clears throat> so just to start, I was looking over your uh, your resume, 
online. And it seems like kind of like right from the beginning from university, you had a pretty strong focus and energy, maybe in climate. But I was just wondering, did you always know that that was kind of a, a field you were, were passionate about or, or did it develop in school? No, it, it definitely developed while I was in university. And frankly, because of proximity, um, as, as you know, Alberta is a, a, a massive energy producer globally. And when I started university, I started getting quite engaged in the energy community. Uh, I think mostly just because of where I was. And in fact, I got a job when I was, um, uh, I was 19 and I got my first job at an energy company and that really set my path into exploring issues around the sustainability of many of our systems, but specifically energy for a number of years. Um, so yeah, that really, really came to be while I was in a, in a university setting, I think because it's kind of that time of, you know, academic enlightenment, so to speak, and, and, you know, finding what the things you care about and what your value systems are. So yeah, it, it, it developed around that time in, in my <clears throat> late teens and early 20s. Yeah, it probably, I guess it does help, eh, being in Calgary, just because it's kind of the, the business center of the energy industry. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would say that I wouldn't have ended up in energy and sustainability had it not been for being where I was. But there's a part of me that, that really thinks that that was the most wonderful coincidence because it, it led down a path of a lot of really exciting work. For sure. And I think, I think how I, <clears throat> I was trying to think about it earlier, how we met. And I, I think I reached out to you because I saw you in the Avenue's top 30 under 30. And in top, the, 40 under 40, top 40 yeah. under 40. Yeah. And they were talking about uh, student energy. So I just wanted yeah. to know, like, what, what is student energy and how, how did that idea come to mind? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess kind of on the same um, line of what we were just talking about, because being in university was such a big part of how me and my peers got interested in energy, we started to look at kind of what the conditions were for young people to learn about the energy sector and, and more specifically, the global transition to cleaner energy. And what we really found was, you know, unfortunately, when young people get move into their first role, they kind of, you know, work in that role, work their way up. They, they learn the industry from only that perspective. Um, and of course, maybe they'll be reading about it and those types of things, but there's not very many opportunities to really explore and dig into the kind of tough questions about the energy industry. And that's what we wanted to do. So with student energy, you know, we were looking into these other conferences and they were always for professionals and cost like thousands of dollars. And so we decided that instead of doing that and, and having, you know, young people have to go through their careers, only learning, you know, from one perspective, we would create the channels to make that happen. And that's how the International Student Energy Summit was born and eventually um, how Student Energy was born. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I've noticed that in, in other industries, too, that a lot of these conferences where you might be able to meet different people and learn different things are, are so expensive that people that are just starting out who would probably really benefit from anything like that, or it's kind of like a, 
it's kind of like a roadblock. Mm -hmm. It is. And especially because students have very limited resources. Um, And so, you know, creating that dialogue was really crucial, but also, you know, we also didn't like the, the way that the, um, the system was set up either. The, the conference system was set up because it was often very one-sided. So there was an element of access, but there was also an element of format that we felt needed to be different for young people. We wanted it to be a place where young people could ask questions. And what were some of the, the first steps you took to, to launch Student Energy? Um, so it's, it really started, the, the story is it, it really started with the conference. So, um, I was about 20 at the time. Um, I was in my third year university and we formed a team of diverse students from across the university of Calgary to build out, um, the, the idea and where that came from or, or how that, I guess, played out was that it was supposed to be for students by students and there was so many different elements to planning a conference at that time. So, you know, we raised over $500,000. Um, we had to, you know, secure the speakers. We wanted to advertise as broadly as possible. And there was a lot of roadblocks along the way. That was actually the time of H1N1. So a lot of hmm. students weren't able to travel to to Canada. And, um, yeah, I mean, there, there were just a lot of a lot of kind of hurdles to overcome and we were all young and kind of learning as we went, but in the end it, it paid off in, in a big way. And, and then after the first conference, we had brought about 300 students from 30 countries to Calgary. Um, and after that first conference, we noticed that there was a very, very tangible need for this. And so, um, you know, we were getting these emails all the time. When's the next one? How can I get involved? Um, you know, is there a student energy where I live? And so we decided to form another conference. And with a second conference happening, we decided it was important that there was an organization that owned the brand. Hmm. And that's how student energy came to be. Um, And that was, you know, maybe it was probably another two years. Um, It was, it was another two years before any of us started working there part or full time. Um, You know, it was, it was a process. It was a very organic process. One conference, a second conference, and then over time we, we gained resources and a really clear vision, and then it became its own organization. Hmm. Well, that's really cool. And <clears throat> I think I've noticed some of the conferences being held in Mexico, right? Yeah, so the, the conferences move around the world. We run them like the Olympics, so they actually are bid for hmm. by students. So student teams get together and they think about what they would want you know, their peers to experience in an energy conference, and they bid and host. Um, and so it, it's, it's moved around the world many times, um, every two years. So our first one was Calgary. Second one was Vancouver. Third one was in Trondheim, Norway. Uh, the fourth one was in Bali, Indonesia, and this is the fifth and it is going to be in Merida, Mexico. Wow. That's cool. Is there, is there a pretty strong focus you find on clean energy in Mexico? Um, yeah, so, I mean, Mexico is also an oil and gas producer. Um, There's certainly an an electrification problem Hmm. um, and a number of, and there's, there's energy poverty in quite a large way in Mexico. And so the government is really focused on how they build energy systems um, for those people who are in sometimes very remote places um, and that are very community based 
systems. So there's, there is a big focus, you know, to be honest, in most countries in the world, there's a big focus on clean energy right now. Um, and it's, it's, it's picking up to the point where I think it's going to pass a tipping point soon. And this really wasn't the case when we started student energy, you know, for example, fracking didn't, the technology didn't exist or wasn't widely applied when student energy started or electric vehicles were not on anyone's radar, um, or storage, electricity storage, you know, those, those conversations barely happened. So, you know, within the span of student energy's life, which is essentially seven years, um, actually gosh, almost nine years now. Um, we, yeah, we started planning in 2008, the first conference. So, um, we're coming up on the, yeah, nine year anniversary when we started planning, but so much has changed. And that's just in kind of the span of one startup organization. Um, so I mean, clean energy globally is really picking up steam and it's also becoming a massive employer. So, um, yeah, I mean, Mexico's focused on it, but I think many, many countries are. Right. Actually, it's kind of interesting. There was a, a commercial on TV the other day from Lexus <clears throat> and it was the first time I've ever seen a car commercial basically signal that the future is going to be like robot driven cars because their their whole advertisement is like like drive a Lexus like while you still can because then it like the second part of the commercial shows someone being driven by like just by the car like not driving itself and I thought it was pretty it's like pretty bold for a commercial to already be showing that and I've I've heard that from a number of futurists that I've been listening to who predicted in about like 15 years which doesn't seem that far away <clears throat> but um, I was going to ask you too I guess you, you kind of have mentioned already but so, so where do you think the energy industry is going like do you think um, is it true that kind of oil might not be the same as it is now in in the next five to ten years well yeah i mean i i think the rate of transition is really hard to predict because if you look at the past and when things have have transitioned they've been slow to start and then they happen quite rapidly so um you know when we switch from whale oil to you know kerosene and, and these types of things they were kind of slow at first and then they they tip so i don't know about if i can say in five to ten years but what i predict is is very much a systems change. So it's not just about energy, but also how we use it. And you were getting to that with the kind of, um, you know, self-driving cars and electric cars and those types of things, because it's not just the energy that goes into the system that needs to change. It's also how we use it throughout. So, I mean, there's a few examples of that. Um, mobility is changing in a, in a huge way, not just switching from one technology to another, in terms of you know the internal combustion engine to electricity, but also from a perspective of how people are transported. You know, Uber. Um, we, we did a student energy did a focus group in China, and a number of students were saying that owning a car is not really a priority for them because they can get the service they need uh, for cheaper and with less hassle just by using an Uber. And it also has a social element, and you know these types of things. So. It's, you know, these systems are altering as well. And so when you 
when you look at something like oil, which is predominantly, like very, very predominantly a transportation fuel, it's not just the fact that there could be a new type of car. It's that the way that cars are used could also be markedly different in a few years. And so, I mean, so that's one. I think the other trend, so, so at Student Energy, we always explain that you can really kind of break energy into electricity and transport fuels and heat. Those are kind of the three major buckets. Um, and so that's oil. That's really the transport side. On, on the you know, community level, there's, there's a change in how we're going to consume electricity and, and likely heat as well. Um, in Africa, you're already seeing, due to the low kind of cash flow in those countries, there's starting to be a lot of text-to-pay-for-energy-type programs, um, MCOPA, is a is you know a success story in this where they're using um, you know cell credits for people to pay for um, energy when they need it and and making that connectivity possible because that's not something we've dealt with before you know we've had a a, a, a you know centralized power plant and you subscribe for energy and, it, and when you turn on the lights it charges you on a meter and you know this is the way it's always worked so this idea that you could choose when your house has electricity. Um, is is new. And so these systems are also altering and changing and I think becoming less centralized and and more community driven. So I think there's going to be big changes on all fronts. And I do think fossil fuels um, will continue to play a a part for a long-ish time, but they can't play a part for forever. It's, it's, It's not possible with the barriers that we have and it's and it's um, not sustainable because they're not renewable. So, I think I think we're going to see uh, a transition and uh, of which speed and and uh, kind of and how disruptive. That's the those are the that's the real question, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's really exciting times. And actually, um, since we're both from Alberta, what like what do you see as the future here? You think? Uh, I mean, that's a question I I do struggle with a little bit because. I think that, you know, I love Alberta. It's where I'm from. I'm from a, you know, coal-producing town, and I worked in the oil and gas industry for a lot of years, and and I do think that Alberta has a challenge. I think Alberta needs to kind of step up to the plate and, and be part of the transitions that are happening. Um, and so in Alberta, I mean, we have so many renewable resources, wind and solar. It's one of the sunniest provinces. Um, so I, I think that our electricity systems could, could transition, but really, you know, how we utilize resource well is going to be a huge part of that. And in the past that hasn't been done very well. So I, I suspect there's going to be another uptick in the oil and gas market globally in the, somewhat soon. Um, I don't think it'll be very big and for very long, but there's going to, there is going to be a little uptick, I think just because supply and demand are adjusting to each other now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that will, will be good for Alberta, but I, I hope we don't waste another opportunity to utilize what we've got to make a transition to where we're going. Yeah, no kidding. I hope too. And I, I also think like, I, I mean, I, I doubt we're ever going to be back up to that $200 barrel kind of mark, right? Um, I mean, it's hard to say, I know, but it's hard to say. I mean, you know, you could envision a world potentially where 
where, you know, carbon pricing makes it so expensive. So yeah, I don't think we're going to see a, an oil price of that, but I, I could see a world where it's very expensive to consume oil. Yeah, that's true. And, um, also in like, now that you're in Europe and kind of looking at Canada sometimes from, from the outside, what, like, what are your thoughts on the whole, not that I want to turn this into like an Alberta thing, but I'm just always curious what your thoughts would be on like the pipeline debacle. Cause you hear so much, so much kind of like a division of people who don't want it to go ahead and some who do want it to go ahead. And I'm just wondering like where, where you would be. Um, where I'd be <laughs> like, where like I... if you think it's a, do you think it's kind of a positive that, that there's been like approvals on a lot of these pipelines as a way to kind of transition still, or do you think it's actually a, like should not be going ahead if you want to say, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So a couple things. So my position in terms of Alberta has always been, if we're going to produce our resources, I would like to get the best price possible for them because of the, you know, environmental and social implications of producing them. So, so I, I've never thought it's a good thing to have only one customer who can dictate, you know, differentials um, and, and basically give us less than market value for that product. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm happy that there's, there's going to be, um, an, another, uh, you know, option yeah, in that true. sense, because, because I, I do think that the market is, is going to be producing for some time. I think what I find very difficult is, is kind of the fixation on pipelines as this kind of golden ticket to um, prosperity. And I I don't think there is an easy way to prosperity at all. Um, And for example, you know, the Keystone pipeline was, was uh, announced, I think in 2007 or something. So it's been, you know, 10 years of waiting on approvals and the, the, landscape that Keystone XL now exists in is completely different. Um, the U S in that time went from being a net energy importer to a net energy exporter. And frankly, it, it, it's surprising to me that there's even the same amount of demand for a Canadian product in those, you know, Gulf coast refineries, um, that make that project still make sense. Hmm. I, I imagine because TransCanada is pursuing it so aggressively that there, that that case is still there, but it's hard for me to envision just because of where the U S has gone in that time. And also where the Gulf of Mexico has gone in that time. So, I mean, I, I think that there's this tendency to think there's that these pipelines are, are going to be a gold ticket. And there's, you know, for a period of time, there was this golden ticket and it's we're, we don't live in that world anymore. Right. We're 7 billion people. Um, growth has to be sustainable. And what I mean by that is it should be focused on people's ideas and knowledge. And of course there's going to be physical parts to that and infrastructure that are required, but you know, the countries that are excelling the most are ones that are able to diversify between resource economy and a knowledge economy and and one that has all differing levels of skill sets and, um, and education that's needed. So, yeah, so I guess where I fall is, is I'm disappointed that it's the 
the prime fixation right, for yeah. Canada and Alberta and not um, one element of a big, broad strategy. Yeah, well, I thought it was pretty interesting, like, not to get into to politics, but, like, um, I remember when our premier of Alberta had said that Keystone was the least of her kind of priorities and more the priority for getting it to the coast, which totally makes sense, but it's funny how other people will say that that was uh, not good because they're so fixated on the one that goes to the U.S., when it's probably, as you said, a lot better to have it go to the coast. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think that China in the long run is is a is a, a more ferocious uh, consumer. Right. Um, but, but yeah, and, and I'll just say, Matt, <laughs> without being too blunt, no one over here cares. And I think that's one of the things that's really important for all of us to remember is that we all live in our localized context and issues that seem like a really, really big deal in one place and on a global scale are are sometimes not the same. So, you know, the things that people are talking about here are migration, mass migration, right. um, the rise of terror-like forces, um, the rise of this kind of populist alt-right movement, mm-hmm. um, these anti-globalization and, and, and trade falling to the wayside, these types of things are the things that are being discussed in a more global context. Right. And, um, you know, of course we all have these things that, that we kind of fixate on, but it's important to always remember that we're all part of broader systems. And I remember, um, we also had a, a talk once on Facebook about, um, carbon tax in general, around the world, and you had a, I really liked your kind of statement about it, but I just wanted to know, like, what are your thoughts on carbon tax in general as a way for, I don't know, as a way for transitioning? So my, my basic thought on a carbon tax is that a market, an economic market, is not a force of nature. It is something that human beings have created through regulation and kind of norms between each other. And, you know, it started between people bartering and over time became money and, you know, and trades and, and investment treaties and all of these things. But it's it's not a force of nature. It's not gravity. It's not, you know, the climate. It is something that humans created. And because of that, it can value or devalue whatever humans set it to to value or devalue. And the the ultimate problem in our current markets is they only value economic prosperity. Um, Sorry, that's a generalization. There are some markets that have been shifted this way, but as opposed to social and environmental um, implications of certain activities. And so for years, there has been a generally kind of accepted belief that you tax things in society you don't want to happen and you reduce taxes on things you do want to happen or you incentivize them. And so, for example, we tax alcohol and tobacco and, you know, in some cases, even unhealthy food is, is, is coming into that because of the burden that it has on the healthcare system. Um, and I, I think to me, a carbon tax, is nothing more than the the market properly understanding and valuing what certain activities do to the environment. And in my ideal scenario, I would see that 
carbon taxation would be used to reduce income taxation because we want people to work and we want companies to prosper. Um, and, and that would allow for, uh, you know, that incentive. And, and I guess the other part is there's also this assumption that a carbon tax will just make everything more expensive and not what I think is actually the case, that there will probably be a blip when things are more expensive. And then the most innovative companies will find solutions to make their products cheaper and they'll compete to the bottom, compete to the bottom price, which mm -hmm. in this case would mean right now, it means you do it at kind of, you know, uh, at the environment's detriment, because that's probably the cheapest, right. but that could be where you do it where you are finding ways to reduce reduce CO2 that are the cheapest and over time your your product becomes the cheapest. So I think that there's this assumption that pricing carbon is is just uh, a blanket thing that that causes problems and uh, for or causes things to be more expensive. Um and then the only the only other thing I'll say is that another issue with carbon pricing um is that there needs to be alternatives so that people can make the right choices. Uh, and that's, I think, where we see some of the challenges with the implementation. Because, you know, if it's feasible for me to ride my bike or take transport for kind of a generally, you know, the same time and effort as it is to drive, then that's a reasonable option for me and I can have a lower carbon footprint. But if those options don't exist, it gets more challenging. And, and that's where in Alberta, it's a bit more challenging. I mean, in Geneva, I literally bike everywhere <laughs> all the time. Geneva much smaller than Calgary. It's much warmer. So, so that's an option, but you know, and, and frankly, the public transit is phenomenal. So I, I, if I didn't have a bike, I would still be fine. Um, so these are the things that governments need to think about when they're implementing is, is what options exist for people to, to choose the thing that will be cheaper for them and better for the environment. And I, I would think some of the cities over there are not as spread out as Calgary. Yeah, <laughs> they, there's constraints here, space constraints. Right. We don't have that in Canada. <laughs> and do you know, is there any good like sources of information that you tend to look at online? I just find like, like nowadays there's so much out there and you never know what's really true or what's not biased or anything but <clears throat> do you have any resources that you trust that come to like energy green energy all that kind of stuff i mean yes there are there are infinite sources and like you said there's there's better and worse ones and um but i think it's good to read broadly and kind of hear multiple perspectives so what i would say is the the kind of statistically driven and very rigorous energy kind of information comes from the International Energy Agency, the IEA, and the Energy Information Administration, the EIA, which is U.S.-focused, but they also do global things. Um, and to an extent, the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Um, and so those, those sources have, you know, a lot of really in-depth information and they're statistically driven. Um, also, it's pretty well um, accepted that anything that the UN puts out is is well checked and and reviewed, um, particularly from the perspective that they're serving 
member states. They're serving national governments. And so it's important to have evidence-driven policy, and, and they really focus on ensuring that it's kind of the best knowledge up to date. Um, so those are, I would say, some of the more credible sources. But I, I would encourage um, people to check out blogs and things, too, like the Energy Collective blog, which is one of my favorites, or... Um, uh, you know, anything that's going on in New York Times or The Economist or Washington Post, Globe and Mail, um, they, they tend to do good analysis. Even Calgary Herald does good analysis on the energy sector, and, and their positions over time have have changed um, to, to be more accepting of the environmental realities, whereas when we first started this, that wasn't the case. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are so many good sources for energy and climate related information um, and digging through them is, is difficult. And so I'll just use that to plug for anyone who's just starting to try and get the handle on the energy system overall. I do also really recommend studentenergy.org. It's quite basic. It's quite focused on people who are just getting a sense of what the different elements of the energy system are, but we have, you know, great short videos and things that make it easier to start exploring. And, and we also provide resources for each topic where you can get more information. And I would think a lot of people are kind of in that category. You know, like even in Alberta where the energy industry seems so big, I think I wouldn't think that a lot of people really know how it works. Yeah, I think, I think it's easy when a system just works the way you need it to, to not kind of have to dig into it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, in the developed world, the beauty of the systems that have been built is that they've made our lives really easy, but it's the problem is then we're not critical of them because we don't fully understand how they operate. Yeah, exactly. And um, <clears throat> speaking of, of the UN, like now that you're working with the UN, I was wondering how did that, um, how did that come about and how has that experience been? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been also a... Um, it's been also a long road to this position, but I, when I left student energy, I decided to, so, and when I say leave, I just want to qualify this with, I left the executive director role and moved onto the board. Um, so, you know, less operational and more strategic position with the organization. And, and when I did that, I, I moved to um, an internship at the UN basically to, to meet people and, and try and get something more permanent. And where I ended up landing was actually with an NGO called the International Institute for Sustainable Development, IISD, which is a Canadian-based organization that focuses on sustainable development in a number of core areas. And one of them is actually energy, but I was brought on to look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And essentially what's happened is over that time, we have developed a really strong partnership with the United Nations. And now I'm working, I'm seconded from the NGO to the UN um, and, and a member of their team working on an innovation project around, I should say innovation and collaboration project around the sustainable development goals and trying to encourage new ways of working together to achieve them. And part of that is, for example, thinking about the integrated nature of sustainable development and, you know, recognizing energies, um, for example, energy's relationship to health and how if you don't have energy, then you can't refrigerate vaccines. Right. Um, or it's um, relationship to education where students in developing countries are struggling to, um, you know, study because they don't have light after 6 or 7 p.m. You know, these types of things. So 
um, that's what I'm working on now. And it's, it's, it's been a really, really exciting, uh, project and it's, it suited me very well because I like to think in systems. And so as much as I love, I always joke, energy and climate will be my first love, but I like thinking about the broader system and how it all plays together. You know, sorry, just like one other thing I would say on the, on the intersection. Um, and this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but you know, climate change is, is going to affect virtually every single system, um, that we know today, agriculture, um, you know, energy and resilience due to, um, you know, larger storms and, and droughts and these types of things. And, and finally, this is affecting migration and conflict as well. So the world is in, in a strange place right now. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of conflict and, you know, that's only heightened by lack of infrastructure, including energy and increasing climate change. So, you know, getting at one issue and, and getting to the core, it has effects on all others. And we have to remember that when we tackle them. <clears throat> and uh, before I continue, just because it's 10, I was just wondering if you still had time or do you have to? Um, I'm supposed to get on a how, Do you have any more questions do you have? Uh, just a few. I can like shorten a couple. Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Okay. I'll just text her and say, yeah, I'm running a few minutes late. Okay. Um, so obviously like, um, you're obviously a very focused and ambitious person. So I was just wondering, uh, you know, do you have any, any tips for kind of efficiency or developing habits and that kind of stuff? Um, oh, that's a cool question. I don't get asked about that very often. Um, well, I'm okay. So, uh, confession, I'm a, I'm a world's biggest procrastinator. Um, I'm a huge procrastinator and I think that's because I always just have so much on my plate. Um, and so I, you know, when we started student energy, I got really into Asana, which is a task tech. Tra- sorry, task tracking software um, developed by the the co-founder of Facebook, one of the co-founders of Facebook. And uh, yeah, so what I find is is being better at scheduling out my weeks and giving myself daily deadlines has helped me to avoid procrastinating, not always, but in, in a number of, of cases. Um, and the other thing that I always try to do is if there's small tasks that are, are kind of um, piling up to get those off the plate. Um, because ultimately sometimes the big strategic, you know, uh, meteor issues take more time and energy. And if you're always dealing with little things, you can never get to them. So I try and get all, you know, let some of those build up and get them all off my plate in one foul swoop so that I have time to think more strategically. And with student energy, when we were starting, that was certainly important because you have to think about where you're positioned and how you're moving things ahead. Um, so yeah. And then my only other kind of productivity thing that I do or tip is just, I, I went through a number of years where I didn't do this and I, uh, I've completely changed my ways and I really prioritize exercise, sleep and eating well. Um, which is, I know a bit cliche, but I, I went through a number of periods of burnout when we were starting up student energy and, and I learned that, you know, taking the hour to get to the gym will save, you know, a lot of unproductivity in the future just by having a fresh mind or not getting burnt out or whatever it may be. So 
yeah, I think those are the main ones. Well, it is pretty amazing how, you know, I've done a lot of workout programs where I also do a pretty strict regimen for maybe 12 weeks. And then sometimes I just go kind of off the track and I'm not working out for a few months. And it's pretty amazing how you would think you'd have more time by not going to the gym, but it almost feels the opposite. Like, I don't know if the going in the morning for me just like kind of sets your day up for success and knowing that you're eating healthy. In my case, like I plan the meals usually, at least on, at least on a daily basis, but it's almost like you have more time or maybe it's just more focus. But, it's true. I also plan, I plan meals and I plan workouts because when they're in my calendar and they're part of my life, I do them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. And, and it, it, it has led to mass, uh, you know, productivity gains. And funnily the sleep one, I, I, I grouped that in there, but I actually always have been a person who prioritizes sleep because I am useless if I'm tired. Yeah. And so it's better for me to get a full night's sleep and, and skip an hour of work at the end of the night than to try and, uh, function on little sleep. And you can ask my co-founders about this because they're both night owls. Um, and this would drive them nuts in our early days, but it really was crucial to being successful. Well, in it's the definitely, long- yeah. I mean, it definitely, one of my biggest problems with sleep is it hasn't been that bad as of late, but typically I'm a pretty bad sleeper, but I actually do set time to have a good sleep. But for some reason, my mind's always so busy I don't know if, uh, if 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 you ever had the same thing, and if you did, like, do you have any tips for for not having such a busy mind before sleep? <laughs> I don't have that. No, okay. <laughs> I get I get really tired, and I just end up asleep. Okay, but nice. On the on the rare nights that I can't, someone taught me this thing in a productivity class once, where you you count down from ten, um, but you don't leave the number that you're on until it's the only thing you're thinking about. So 10, like you just think about 10 right. until it's the only thing. And you keep coming back to it because other things pop in. And I have to admit, I've had to do that a few times, not often, but a few times. And I've only ever made it to eight. Wow. So that I'm asleep. So <laughs> Lucky. I don't know if it's a random helpful tip, but it works for me. That's interesting. I, I haven't heard I that one before. <laughs> um, and for anyone interested in kind of in the, the, the energy industry, but specifically like sustainable energy or green industry or, or sorry, green energy or clean energy. What, uh, what fields do you find look, look promising? Like over the next say decade or two. I really think, you know, if you look at the fact that, you know, around 80% of our energy mix is fossil fuels and that needs to come down to virtually nothing, which is going to be a, big transition and, and a, and a really hard one. Mm-hmm. Um, we need every tool in the toolbox. And so I think you name an area and I think it is important. So whether it is solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, kind of the, the basic renewables, or if it's more the infrastructure in between, um, such as grids, energy storage, you know, those things. And then some of the big moonshots like nuclear fusion and these types of things. I, I really think that we need, we need it all. Um, and so I, if, if I were, you know, young and, and going back to university and maybe an engineer or, or a business kid and wanted to get involved in something, I would, I would definitely look at, at energy in, in its, you know, completeness. Right. Um, 
as a really promising field. Do you think is, is a lot of the energy industry more geared towards, say, like engineers or kind of anyone in, in the more like tech tech field or also for people in, in business and marketing and, and that kind of stuff? I think there's definitely more in the technology, but there's yeah. every policy, technology, you name it, it's it's there. But I, I would say that um, for technical people, there's a huge, huge amount of work. And and certainly I know that a number of my friends in business who are interested in energy did, did struggle um, compared to what you see with engineering. But right. having said that, of course, there's everything. Yeah. You know, trading electricity or, or, or commodities, um, marketing to end users, technology solutions like uh, outside of kind of infrastructure, but, you know, things like Nest, like software solutions, I guess is the word I should say. Those are all becoming very crucial. So, I, I mean, any anyone with an interest in energy, I think, could find a place for themselves. Okay. And just two more questions, and uh, this one's kind of just a fun one, but I probably know your, your answer to it. But if, if you could kind of wave a wand and have kind of all the, the governments of all nations kind of agree on something, what, what do you think it would be? Oh man, that's a hard one. I guess there's, there's there's so many things. I was asking that because I've just you know over the last few few months, especially, I always wonder why there's such why there's still people who don't believe, say, in climate change and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and where that like why like where does that stem from? Um, because I think it's it's inconvenient mm-hmm. and upsetting um, to to be told that the way you've done things for a long time is leading to some pretty detrimental consequences. And in fact that you can't necessarily see, or it's hard to prove that they are part of that. So I think, I think, I think it's, it's challenging, but I mean, yeah, I guess if I could wave a wand, I mean, there are, there are literally so so many many things, (laughs) but, but you know, I think I think one of them would be to properly value the environment, whether that whatever means that's through, but then also to to try very hard to create systems that are responsive to communities and and you know reduce this kind of massive inequality we're finding ourselves in because it's causing rifts in every social structure and that affects everything, you know, energy included and climate included. So you know, to really be responsive to what people, the people they represent and, um, to be transparent and accountable to them. And are there any, uh, any books or documentaries or podcasts or blogs that you find yourself recommending a lot? Around energy and climate? Yeah, or, or anything, but. Hmm. That's a great question. I'm a podcast junkie, but not really on energy and climate. Okay. You know, it's funny because I was just telling someone the other day that I used to read energy books. Um, one of the kind of fundamental ones is The Prize, which okay. is, uh, you know, kind of a, a lot about the history and geopolitical dynamics of primarily oil, but oil and gas in general and fossil fuels in general. Um by Daniel Jurgen, and you know, I used to read these types of books, and what I found over time is these things change so quickly, and so I now find it more effective to just be up to date 
mm. on, on where we're at. So I mentioned the energy collective is great commentary. Um, I, I really like Twitter for staying on top of these things as well, or Google news alerts. I get like many Google news alerts. Um, but yeah, so I don't necessarily have any that are super specific, but, um, I think you would, if you want to ever go to student energy's Twitter page and look at who we're following, there's a lot of the big thinkers in energy. The other one that I would really actually recommend, um, for really good analysis at a kind of a journalism level is Bloomberg new energy finance. Um, and they, they really are pulling so much data and know what's going on. So I, I would check them out. And in fact, um, their CEO kicked off their conference last um, last year with an incredibly powerful speech about the future of energy. And I really recommend checking it out. So it's Bloomberg new energy finances, uh, conference. Okay. And then what, uh, what, what podcast do you usually listen to? Even if it's not energy, energy. Oh, I so many podcasts, <laughs> uh, the kind of the like standard or like the very widely listened to, um, uh, this American life and, um, radio lab, but also mm. a few about design, like 99% invisible, um, invisibilia. I really like one on the Supreme court called more perfect. Mm. Um, and then I, I, I'm recently got into how I built this, which is kind of like what we're doing today, but people talking about how they built companies and movements and, mm-hmm. and startups. Uh, podcast was also like that. And then without giving, without being too embarrassed, I also really like true crime podcast. So this is what I do when I'm on my bike. I, uh, I listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's always interesting to hear new ones because <clears throat> I find like I got into the more like the James Altucher and the Tim Ferriss podcast. And then I find that I don't even think about going like to listen to other ones. And Someone told me there's something like, I don't know, 50 or 100,000 podcasts a day that get started. Wow. <laughs> it's something that it just seems like unreal, kind of like the like blogs. So there's obviously a, a lot out there. So it's always good to, to hear a couple new ones. But yeah, well, that's it for the questions. I know you have to, have to go. So um, I just want to say thanks for coming on. It's been really awesome and really interesting. And uh, yeah, it'll be, be great to see what uh, our future holds in energy. Yeah, definitely. I'm. I. I think it's bright. Let's just say that. <laughs> That's great. But yeah, we'll have a have a good day, and maybe we'll have you on again sometime. Sounds great. Yeah, we can do an update maybe on more sustainable development stuff. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Sounds good. Thanks a million. No Talk problem. to you soon. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye. All right. Well, that's the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as as much as I did. I really loved talking about the energy industry because I just feel, well, sustainability in general is just so important um, going forward. And I'm not sure how it is around the world, but definitely in Canada um, and the U.S., there's definitely a big focus on energy and clean energy and sustainable energy and the pipelines and all that stuff. And it's just nice to have someone on the show who really knows what they're talking about and has a really good viewpoint on it all. So I really hope you enjoyed it. If you want to see any of the links, any of the show notes, head on over to livelimitless.net. And if you look up the podcast, you'll see the link to Kaylee Taylor. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask myself or Kaylee, I'm sure if you put them in the comments on that post, I can have her answer them. Uh, And other than that, if you like the show, please, please leave me a review 
on iTunes. It would really mean the world to me. Or, well, and or, if you want to send me an email, I'd also love to just hear from you and know if, if you like the show. And my email is matt, M-A-T-T, at livelimitless.net. And other than that, have a great week, and we'll see you in the next show.